Welcome to Christian Assembly, a family church. Since 1930, we've been serving the communities of Western Pennsylvania, Ohio, and West Virginia with the good news of Jesus Christ. With over 40 years of Bible teaching and ministry experience, Pastor Bill brings faith-filled revelation from God's Word. We believe with you, wherever you are, that God will inspire and change your life through the following teaching. For more information about Christian Assembly, follow us on social media or visit our website at cafamily.net. Praise God. All right, we're going to look in uh, Joshua chapter 18, verse 1. Joshua 18, verse 1. And we're going to read the first three verses here. Joshua 18, as soon as I get there. We've been spoiled, haven't we? Having the notes up there, all you got to do is look up there, and there they are. <laughs> Amen. All right. The whole con this is uh, from the modern English translation, dividing the rest of the land. The whole congregation of the children of Israel assembled at Shiloh and set up the tent of meeting there. The land was subdued before them, yet seven tribes among the children of Israel remained who had not yet received their inheritance. So Joshua said to the children of Israel, how long will you delay going in to possess, notice this language, the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you? Did he give them the land? Did they possess it? No, they did not possess the land that God gave them. So select three men from each of you, and I will send them out, and they will rise and go, out, go throughout the land and describe it according to their inheritance, and they will come back to me. And then he goes on to say other things. But anyhow, I want you to see the first couple of verses here, the first three verses, that God gave them the land, but they did not possess the land that God gave them. Well, they procrastinated. God gave them the land. It was theirs to take, but they didn't. So in your notes, what God gives, we must take possession is your first word of by faith. What God gives, we've got to take a hold of it. We've got to take it. We've got to possess it. How do we do that? We do that by faith. So God wasn't holding back from them. They were procrastinating. It wasn't God's fault. He wasn't holding back from them. They were procrastinating. They weren't doing what was necessary for them to go and get their inheritance and experience it. Okay? So why were they procrastinating? Well, because it would require a change, is your next word, a change in their lifestyle. They would have to change what they were doing, the way they were living. Why? Well, because you see, up to this point, God was doing everything for them. Now, in your next word is, they would have to believe God for themselves. Remember how, when they came out, God provided manna from heaven, right? Water out of a rock, right? He took care of them. What was the whole purpose? He was going to get them from Egypt into the promised land. And he gave them instructions as to how to get into the promised land. And he told them specifically he would drive out all the inhabitants, all the ites that were in the land... So that when they got there, they shouldn't fear them. But an angel would go before them and drive them out. And they would enter in and possess a land filled with, that's flowing with milk and honey. 
I will be a, their God. He said, I'll be a God to you and I will be an enemy to your enemies. And what else would he do for them? Take sickness away from the midst of them. Fulfill the number of their days. All those things he said would take place in the promised land. What a wonderful promise God made to them, right? Well, the problem is this. He brought them out of Egypt in slavery, but he couldn't get the slavery mentality out of them. That was the issue. That was the problem. Their way of thinking was, we're slaves. Now we're free. There's a promised land. But their thinking was, he brought us out here to die. They actually said that. He brought us out here to kill us in the wilderness. Oh, would to God there were graves in Egypt. We could have stayed there. At least we had good fish. We had stuff to eat. They forgot about they were slaves in Egypt. Now, what's the problem here? Moses could not get them to change their way of thinking. He couldn't eradicate the slavery mentality from them. And as a result, when they got to the promised land, they sent out spies to spy out the land. And when they saw the land, oh, it's a wonderful land. Flows with milk and honey. It's exactly as God said. But, and there's that word, but, there's giants in the land. This city's walled. There's no way that we could do it. They are stronger than we are. And they started to complain and so on and so forth. So, as a result... They failed to enter into the promised land that God had provided for them. So what I want to do is show you that under the leadership of Joshua, when it changed from Moses to Joshua, God had to raise up a generation of faith, a new breed, a breed of people that would not have a slavery mentality and view themselves as victims, overcome, etc., etc., incapable of entering into what God had provided for them. So God chooses a man named Joshua. And Joshua has a different mentality. If you recall the story of Joshua and Caleb, they were two of the ten spies that said, we can take the land because God's on our side. But the other ten said, no, we can't. Because you see, they're bigger than we are. Two different perspectives of the same situation. Can you see that? Two different perspectives. How can you look at the same identical situation and have such different perspectives and views? Well, that's what took place. And so God raised up a man named Joshua. And guess what? He taught him how to teach the people faith. Wouldn't you say that's pretty interesting to find out how he did that? Well, he did. He taught them how uh, to walk in faith, how to live by faith, and how to develop a higher level of faith in himself. So look in Joshua chapter 5 and look at uh, verse 1. And here we see the beginning of God's instruction through Joshua to help them develop the mentality that they needed to get into the promised land. Verse 1, when all the kings of the Amorites west of the Jordan and of the Canaanites by the sea to the east heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan before the children of Israel, when they crossed over, their hearts melted, and there was no longer any breath in them because of the children of Israel. Now, isn't that something? Isn't that amazing that here they, here they are, God delivered them, God dried up the, the, the waters of the, of the Jordan, and they're to go over to the promised land and enter in, and their hearts melted within them. Their enemy was defeated, and they didn't know it. They were already defeated. So number one, our enemy is defeated 
and that's found in Joshua 5, verse 1, we need to view the enemy as defeated. Imagine that. The enemy was defeated. They conceded the land. They actually said, we concede the land. It's theirs. There's no God like their God. We saw what he did for them. He's defending them. He's fighting for them. But Moses and all those other guys, those 10 spies, what are they saying? The 10 spies are saying, we can't do it. There's no way we can do it. They're bigger than we are, so on and so forth. So you got this dialogue going forth, back and forth between these two. You realize that they didn't have to spend 40 years in the wilderness. They could have walked right into the promised land and experienced the beauty of all that God had for them. But they didn't. With the enemy defeated, down and defeated, and conceding the land, they stayed away from it because we can't do it. It was up here between the ears. They had doubt, unbelief, and just couldn't get rid of that slavery mentality. So, under point A, we had to view sickness the way that God does. Our enemy has been defeated. I know this is difficult because we deal with it every day, but the enemy is defeated. The devil's been defeated, and all his works have been defeated. As a matter of fact, for, we're told in 1 John 3, 8, for this purpose was the Son of God manifest. Why? That he might destroy the works of the devil. Undo, outdo, overdo all the works of the devil. We're told in the book of Hebrews as well that he's defeated. Well, I wrote these scriptures out. You can just look them up for yourself. Sickness and disease, as far as God is concerned, has been dealt with by the stripes of Jesus. Now, there are the verses. Isaiah 53, who is believed our report, to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed. And it goes on to say, he bore our sickness, he carried our pains, and with his stripes we were healed. Say it with me, with his stripes, with his stripes I, am I am healed. I believe that report. I believe that report. Now, your body's going to tell you something else. <laughs> it's going to tell you something different. No, you're not. You don't feel healed. Exactly. But my report is, I side with God, not my body. All right. We need to view it that way. Matthew 8, 16, 17. When the evening was come, they brought unto him many that were sick and, and filled, they had devils and all that. He cast out spirits with his word, healed all that were sick, that it might be fulfilled. which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying he himself took our infirmities, and he bore my sicknesses. Say it with me. He bore my sickness and carried my pains. Say to him, you bore my sickness. You carried my pains. And then 1 Peter 2.24 says, Who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sin should live to righteousness, by whose stripes we were healed. Say it with me, by your stripes, I was healed. If I was healed, then I am healed. Oh, give him a shout for that. Oh, hallelujah. I am healed by your stripes, Jesus. And then Galatians chapter 3, verses 13 and 14, it tells us, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree. That the blessings of Abraham might come on the Gentiles, that's us, through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, which basically involves every sickness and disease, whether it's known or unknown, named or unnamed, written or unwritten, We've been redeemed from. So say it with me. I'm redeemed from the curse of the law. In every sickness and every disease known to mankind. Hallelujah. Isn't that good to know? This is what he's trying to in inject into their thinking. We need to think that way. Now, I know we're challenged along the way, but we've got to think in line with the word of God. His ways and thoughts are higher than ours. And you know that. So God wants us to side with him, not even with our feelings and emotions. 
Look at under point B, Hebrews 2, 14, 15. He took part of humanity that he might destroy him that had a power of death that is the devil and deliver us who were in bondage to fear. Jesus defeated, is your word, Satan for us. Isn't that great to know? He defeated him for us. Why is that important to know? Because there are spirits of infirmity that try to impose sickness and disease upon God's people. You see that with the woman that was bowed over for all those 18 years. And Jesus said this, woman, this daughter of Abraham was bound by Satan for 18 years. You see, we don't see it that way in the natural world. In the medical world, it says rheumatoid arthritis. But in the spiritual realm, when there's a spirit involved, he said it was a spirit behind it that held her captive. And she needed to be freed of that. And she was. And then in the book of Numbers under point C, the ten spies viewed their enemies as being stronger, is your word, than they were. Those ten spies saw the enemy stronger than they were. We've got that two perspectives here. But Joshua and Caleb viewed them as bread because God was on their side. Bread to feed their faith on. Bread to feed their faith on. So how can you have the same scenario, the same view of the promised land, and you've got ten spies on this side, and they say, we can't do it, they're too strong. And you've got two on this side saying, they're bread for us, God's on our side, we can do it. The point is, what camp do we want to be a part of? Someone said, you faith people, you talk about faith all the time. Well, would you rather be, let's doubt everything that God wants to do for us. I'm a doubter. Really? I'd rather preach the faith of God than doubt and unbelief like the ten spots. And guess what? Maybe you're here and you never heard me say this. This has really knocked me in the head when I discovered this. You can go on John Gill's commentary about this. The ten spies, that's... And sometimes when I watch some of these video preachers and they preach all this stuff that's against what we believe, I'm thinking one day, can you imagine? These ten spies that got all the people to doubt God, they died by the plague right before the Lord and the people. And the plague was worms ate out their tongues, jaws, and stomachs right in front of them. So you believe in your heart, you say with your mouth, what you believe in your heart, what you say with your mouth. They were teaching them, we can't do it, we can't do it, they're bigger, they're greater, they're stronger, we can't do it, we can't do it. And the people all sided with them and said, we can't do it, we can't do it, we can't do it. So their judgment was, worms ate out their jaws and tongues, and their, basically their navel, which represents the very heart of their being, heart and mouth. So what they said was wrong in the eyes of God, and he did not like it one bit. But he went on to say, but as Joshua and Caleb had another spirit within them, they're going into the promised land. And in Numbers chapter 14, where it talks about, as you've spoken in my ears, that's what I'm going to do to you. Can you imagine that? God saying that, as you've spoken in my ears, that's what I will do to you. So here we got on this side, the camp that says under Moses, we can't do it. Here we got on this side, the camp that's raised up under Joshua, we can do it. Now God had to do what? Shift. He had to wait for 40 years until all these people died off. And those that were 19 under, they went with Joshua. And Joshua began to teach them faith that was taught to him by God. And that's what we're studying. So number one, enemy has been defeated. Number two, we have a covenant with God. Look at verse two. And this is once again, this is God instructing Joshua what to teach the people. Look at verse two. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua... Make flint knives and circumcise the children of Israel a second time. 
So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the children of Israel at the hill of the foreskins called Gibeath Haralat. Well, doesn't sound good at all. Sounds extremely painful, doesn't it? All right. But this represents the Abrahamic covenant. All right, in your notes, we have a covenant with God. Number one, the enemy is defeated. Number two, we have a covenant with God. A covenant is a contract or a legal agreement to do something or not to do something. And once you enter into a blood covenant relationship, what stands behind your integrity is your life. If you break a blood covenant relationship, you die. You don't forfeit your possession like a car that you didn't pay for or you didn't pay for your mortgage on your house to say repossess it and take it from you. It goes to sheriff sale. You give up your house. If you signed in blood to purchase that house, you died. You don't just give the house back. You die. So we need to learn that in our culture. They understood that in that culture. You break a blood covenant relationship. You die. Pretty strong. Wouldn't you say strong words? Well, that's exactly uh, what, what God was establishing. Now, notice this. Under point A, circumcision was the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. Your word is signed. It reminded Israel of God's promises made under oath. Not to circumcise a son meant they lived outside the covenant. They lived Outside the covenant. And are you ready for this one? Go to Exodus chapter 4. Exodus chapter 4. I don't know if you ever read this before or not, but it's very interesting. Verses 24 through 26. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him, that is Moses, and sought to kill him. What? What? How do you think you would feel if God was looking to kill you? Hunting you down. All right. Then Zipporah took a sharp stone and cut off the foreskin of her son and threw it at his feet and said, Surely a bloody husband are you to me. So he let him go. Then she said, A bloody husband you are because of the circumcision. Circumcision was serious business with God. You realize that? Extremely serious business. If Moses was going to deliver Egypt or, or Israel out of Egypt, he represents God. It was up to him to see to it that he circumcised his two sons to Zipporah. Well, the first one was circumcised, and because she was a Midianite, she didn't like the process. And so but what we understand is that the second one wasn't circumcised. And so God then realized 
here's the one who represents me and also the people of Israel. He's going to deliver them. But yet, he's not operating within the covenant. You see, if you don't get circumcised, you're on the outside of the covenant, not within. And God was so upset with him, he sought him to kill him. And Zipporah, then, she basically what she does is she circumcises him and throws the foreskin at Moses and says, you're now my blood husband. In other words, she paid for his life with the blood of her son. Pretty serious business, wouldn't you say? It got their attention, didn't it? Why is that important? Well, because God honors blood covenant. If we want to have strong faith, we've got to understand that we are in a blood covenant relationship with a blood covenant keeping God, that he will keep his word, honor his word, whatever he has spoken or said. If we want faith, that's where it comes from. If we believe in the integrity of God, it's because he vowed in blood to honor his word. And you're going to see that as we go along here. Under point B, under on the strength of the covenant, notice the word of strength. Moses intercedes and asks God to repent for wanting to carry out judgment. And you can see this in, we won't take the time to read it all, but I'll give you the gist of it. When they made the molten calf and God was upset with them and he saw what they were doing, he tells Moses, get down off the mountain and get back down among the, your people Look at what your people did. He's calling the people of Israel Moses' people, not his. Look what they're doing. Look how they're fooling around down there. Look at all the sin that they're committing and all that. And you get down there, and I tell you what, I'm going to make a, a new nation out of you. I'm going to wipe them off the planet. I'm so frustrated with them. God was angry. God was upset. His wrath was just stirring. And, and, and what, does God, what does Moses say to him? Um, excuse me. Remember... Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh-huh. If you do that, they're going to mock you. The people are going to mock you, laugh at you, that you brought them out of Egypt to come out here just to slay them in the wilderness. Honor your covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. By the way, I'm too old to have more kids. I'm not going to have another nation under me. So uh, what does the Bible go on to say that he did? God repented repented on the strength of the covenant, repented for wanting to destroy the people. It means he had a change of heart and mind. Why? Because you see, Abraham was long gone. He had to honor the covenant he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He had to do that. And here's where some people get upset. They, they say, you faith people, you think you've got God in your pocket or in a box somewhere. No, we don't. God put himself Boundaries that he established for his operation and dealings with mankind. Why? So that we can have faith. If God can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, however he wants and all that. And some people say that's his sovereignty. Well, guess what? If he could do that, you can't have faith. Because you don't know what he'll do. If he can change like that, change like that, change like that. How many know that God's smart enough to know he's not going to make a promise he can't keep? Isn't he smart enough to know that? Absolutely. So here we see he makes a covenant and you can see that in, in Genesis chapter 22 as well. But in Hebrews 6 and here is really 
where it gets really good. I have to go to that. Let's Hebrews 6, 12. Here we have God revealing himself in such a way so as to make it certain to all humanity we can trust him. And look at verse 12. Hebrews 6. All right. It says, so that you may not be lazy, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So how are we, how do we inherit the promises of God? Faith and patience. For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could vow by no one greater, he vowed by himself. By his own life, by his own integrity. Saying, surely I will bless you and surely I will multiply you. So after Abraham had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men indeed swear by a greater authority than themselves. And for them, an oath of confirmation ends all dispute. So in other words, if you go to a court of law and just say, I swear to tell the truth. So help me God, which we know we don't want to swear to do that. But if you do do that, what you're saying is, I would die, rather die than lie. And I'm swearing to a higher power. Well, God swore by himself because there's no higher power. So God wanting to show more abundantly the immutability of his counsel to the heirs of promise. You got to say this with me. I'm an heir of promise. Say it again like you really love it. Oh, aren't you glad you're an heir of promise? He calls us heirs of promise. He made promises to us that he will not break. Confirmed it by an oath. So that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie. We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Which hope, which we have this hope as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. Which enters into the inner place behind the veil. That is powerful. So God swore by an oath so that you and I could have a steadfast, confident faith knowing that God gave a promise or made a promise and he cannot go back on that promise. If he does, he forfeits his integrity, he lies and ceases to be God. Satan is the father of liars, not God. When God makes a promise, he keeps it. Every promise is yea and amen as far as he's concerned. So what is faith? Find a promise of God, embrace it, and say, you said this, I'm holding you to it. And he says, you're right, I did. And you're going to see this. So in your notes, God made a promise, swore by himself, and is now under an oath, just as he was then. This truth is the foundation for a strong, victorious life of faith. This is the foundation. It has more to do with the integrity of God than our ability to believe. This is his integrity. He is not going to break a promise. He's just not going to do that. All right, so we see this in the book of Psalms 89. You can look it up for yourself, but it's talking about once I have sworn to my servant David, 
that I cannot lie, and you could trust my word, it's as sure as the moon at night and the sun in the morning and the stars in the sky, all the heavenly bodies working together, my plan, you can trust me that I will honor my word, not alter it or change it in any way, shape, form, or fashion. So once God swears, he cannot lie is your next word. He cannot lie. He just can't lie. So, because he can't lie, we can trust him. If he can break a promise, we can trust him. Someone says, well, if he wants to change his mind and not do something, then he's God, he's sovereign. No, he can't. Simple explanation of sovereignty. Sovereignty is God who is a sovereign God, established boundaries for his dealings with mankind. And he swore by an oath not to overstep those boundaries so that we could trust him and have faith in him. If he could step over those boundaries in dealing with us and just operate apart from all that, we can't trust him. We can't have faith in him. So to ensure that we could trust him, he swore by an oath, made a blood covenant with us, and the two heads of the covenant, God the Father and God the Son, came in together and they formed a covenant called the New Covenant. They negotiated the terms and the benefits of the contract of the covenant, and they can't lie. And since both are perfect, and the blood's been shed and sealed, the covenant, we expect God to act out what he said. And every promise is yea and amen. If he can change his mind now in his sovereignty, he becomes a liar. So faith is based on not what we did, but what God did. Let me ask you a question. Did you ever make a promise to your child? Did you ever promise to give them $10 million? Why not? You don't have it to give. And because you don't have it to give, you would never make a promise like that. Now, if God promised to give you $10 million, promise us, Lord. <laughs> Wouldn't that be wonderful? Wouldn't it? Because you see, he has it to give, and so he can't lie. Imagine that. So God's smart enough to know that I'm not going to say that because I can't perform that. He wouldn't say it. But because he can back it up with his integrity, I'll say it and I'll make it good on their behalf. Everyone who believes the promise and acts in faith receives it and it will certainly come to pass. So the faithful witness to Noah was the rainbow in the sky, right? So I ask this question oftentimes when people come up to me and they say, you can't put God in a box like that. You can't just expect that God has to do what you say. Really? Can he destroy the earth by a flood ever again? Why not? And they're quick to say, uh-uh. I said, why? Well, he made a promise. You're answering your own question. If he can't violate his promise, then he's made a boundary for himself, didn't he? He can't cross it. He can't go over it. Now, if I say, does he have the ability to do it? What's the answer? Yes. But will he do it? No. And why? He made a promise. He will not in any way break the promise. And that's what he said. So the, ra the rainbow reminds us of the price we pay for trusting our own limited reasoning. Is your next word. As our basis for faith. Rather than the absolute truth 
of God's unfailing word. So we'd rather trust his word rather than our own reasoning. It also reminds us of the covenant God made with all creation to preserve, is your word, the created order and of God's hatred for what? Sin. His faithfulness and his provision for salvation. So that bow in the sky, it doesn't just remind us of God's promise not to destroy the earth by a flood. It reminds us of his hatred for sin, his faithfulness, his provision for salvation. He saved the family, he saved the human race by an ark that was built. So it also includes all that. Well, in Revelation chapter 4, this is where it really, it gets good. You ready for it to get good or gooder? Look at the book of Revelation. The last what? The last four. The last four? All right. Preserve. Sin. Faithfulness. And provision. You're welcome. In the book of Revelation, chapter 4, look at verse, let's see here, 3. And he who sat there appeared like a jasper and a sardius stone. There was a rainbow around the throne appearing like in emerald. Now, we know about the bow that's in the sky that represents the Noahic covenant. But here we have another bow that uh, rainbow around the throne. In your notes, this rainbow encircles the throne of God and speaks of all that God does as being tempered with mercy. So in other words, when he looks upon the circle of the earth and he sees humanity, he is looking through this rainbow before the throne, a rainbow of mercy and a rainbow of grace established by the covenant that he made with us through Jesus Christ. This mercy is based on what Jesus did for us on the cross and represents the new covenant. The new covenant. So you see, people will say, well, what about somebody back in the Old Testament and all that? Wait a minute, we got a new covenant. Let me remind you of that. Establish upon better promises. Let me remind you of that as well. The Bible is progressive revelation. What they had back then was wonderful, but it was progressively giving us more light and understanding of what God was all about and what redemption was all about. And so now he has before the throne, we need to see this, when he looks down upon the circle of the earth and he looks into our lives, he doesn't see me the way I am in my own flesh, in my own abilities. He sees me cleansed of the blood of Jesus Christ and has mercy upon my soul. That's how he sees us. He sees us with every provision of Calvary already established in our lives as he looks through the blood. And sees us there through it as a rainbow around the throne. Now, Judah was the royal tribe in which the messianic king, are your next two words, the messianic king would come to sit on the throne of David. 
the emerald. And it was an emerald that we just read there, the emerald. So the emerald was Judah's stone. And Judah was the royal tribe in which the Messianic king would come to sit on the throne of David. So wouldn't it be great if he could just peel back the curtain that separates us from heaven and we can see all this? Who would like that? How about the rest of you? Would you like that? You just pull that thing back and you've got, you can see the rainbow. You've got the Father here, Jesus at his right hand. And they're looking through that rainbow, oh, the blood of Jesus that was established. Oh, my goodness. Can you imagine that? Wow, what a picture. So in Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 6, now it says that we have a new covenant established upon better promises. And this is another thing that really, to me, it just baffles my mind. But they are the chosen people of God. The Jewish people, the chosen people of God. He has a covenant with them. And you see, and they're special people. I know that. I know that. And they fulfilled their purpose. And Jesus came. And Jesus died. He shed his blood. He established a better covenant upon better promises. Whatever promise they had, we got better. And if the old covenant meant they could have healing, how much more can we have healing in the new covenant? Remember Psalm 103 that says, Bless the Lord, all my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. And don't forget one benefit, which is a condition of a contract or a covenant. Who forgives all our sins. Say it with me, you forgive all my sins. Thank him like you mean it. Are you glad he forgives all your sins? But the next breath, he says, and he heals all our diseases. Doesn't he say that? Yes. Say it with me. He heals all my diseases. He redeems our lives from destruction. He crowns us with loving kindness and tender mercies. He satisfies our mouth with good things. Our youth is renewed like the eagles. Oh, bless the Lord. Oh, my soul. That's what he wants us to declare. Okay. So, the new covenant is superior, is your word, to the old covenant for many reasons. It's superior. Well, one of which is the better promises the old covenant couldn't provide is your word. Couldn't provide it. The old covenant could not provide what we're about to read. Number one, a change of heart. Could not provide that. Two, the remission of sin. Oh, ours isn't covered like theirs. Ours are remitted. Not remembered anymore. You know, when the devil brings up that thing you did last week, when he brings it up, it's only a picture of something that took place that's in a sea of forgetfulness that God doesn't remember anymore. Now, he's going to remind you of it to make you feel of guilt and condemnation, right? But what are we supposed to say? That's only a snapshot of something that was under the blood. It's under the blood. I'm not going to fish and dig it up, so forget it. Okay, so a change of heart, remission of sin, and eternal inheritance are three of the major benefits or promises of the major better promises. So, thank God, by the blood of Jesus, we're born again. We have a change of heart. By the blood of Jesus, we have remission of our sin. They don't exist anymore. And we have an internal inheritance in Christ. So, in Exodus chapter 15, verse 26, you can look it up later. This was the establishment of the healing covenant that God, Jehovah God, made with Israel. He said, if you keep my laws, my statutes, my commandments, and you're obedient to do what I tell you to do, then I, I will. I am Jehovah Rapha, the Lord, your healer. 
I will be to you Jehovah Rapha, the Lord, your healer. So there it is. He made a healing covenant. Now, here's the question. Did God have to do that? Not at all. Did God want to do that? Yeah. So when someone says, but God's sovereign, I will say, yes, he's sovereign. And he made a covenant of healing with humanity, which, okay, they'll say, no, that's with the Jews. Then I say, okay, it's with the Jews. We got a better promise, uh, covenant established on better promises. So if that's the case, then that we, ha we have all they had and more. That's why it's better. All that they had, we have, and also something more, something better. The old covenant provided healing based on obedience to the laws and commandments of God. Walk in my ways, keep my statutes, honor my judgments, etc., etc., etc. Based on your performance, based on what you do. Obviously, Moses found that out, didn't he? He wasn't honoring the covenant of circumcision, right? And God wanted to kill him for that, right? Well, listen to this. Look at the next part. In 1 Peter 2.24, we are told healing is provided under the new covenant based on the work of Jesus, not us. Based on the performance of Jesus, not us. Not our performance is your next word. Not our performance, but on the performance of Jesus. Aren't you glad for that? Now, that doesn't mean you can sin and get away with it. That's not, I'm not talking about that. It has nothing to do with you and I establishing this covenant of healing. Jesus established it. It was based on his performance and his work, including sitting down together as a covenant head and talking it over with the Father, making certain that the provision would be healing in our bodies as well. So in 1 Peter 2.24, by whose stripes you were healed. And that's how God sees it. Now, when Oral Roberts, I have this as a little testimony, recovered from a stroke... He attributed uh, the, the uh, recovery to studying the blood covenant. He was, I don't know if you recall that. You know, this was some time before he died, but um, he, was, he had a bad stroke. And what he did was he got to the best materials he could get and studied the blood covenant. And as a result, he was healed of the stroke, completely healed of the stroke. And he lived many years after that. But he said it was the blood covenant that did it for me. When I studied that and I realized that God must perform his word and keep his promise, that is what did it for him. Now, look in Hebrews chapter 11, 17 through 19. Um, yeah, let's read that because this really, again, is important. To establish strong faith. I know it's a lot of material here, but if you take it home and study it, that's why you've got the notes here. It'll bless you. It'll help you really establish a good, strong foundation for your faith. I guarantee you, many in the body of Christ don't even view it this way. They don't see it this way because maybe they're not astute students of the word. I don't know. But how many of you know that when Jesus was on earth, that he taught levels of faith or degrees of faith? You have no faith, little faith, great faith, and then there's perfect faith. At least that. There's shipwreck faith as well. Faith unfeigned as well. But those four levels, you can say... Little faith, when, when they, they, they wouldn't um, do something about the storm, they were in the boat, and they were going to drown, and they said, Lord, don't you care that we're going to perish? We're dying, and you don't care. God doesn't care, and we're dying. That's no faith. He said, how is it that you have no faith? So if you want to understand some of the characteristics of no faith, God doesn't care. You ever say that? God, you don't care what I'm going through, and I'm going to die, man. This thing is killing me. If you talk like that, that's called no faith by Jesus. Secondly, Peter began to walk on the water when he said, come. He began to walk on the water and he actually walked on the water 
And then when he began to sink, Jesus got a hold of him, brought him back into the boat, and he says, Oh, ye of little, little faith can get the job half done, but it doesn't consummate the miracle. So there's a def definition or description or a characteristic of little faith. Well, then, great faith is found in the Syrophoenician woman who went to Jesus and said, My daughter's tormented by a devil. Come and help me. And he says, I'm not here to, to take care of you, Gentiles. I'm not to give the children's bread and cast it to dogs like you. She said, yeah, you're right. But dogs can have crumbs. Dogs can have crumbs. What did Jesus do? Oh, woman, great is your faith. She's not even a Jew, has no access to the word. But yet her understanding of things is what shone through. He says, great is your faith. Be it unto you as you spoke. Now, another thing about this, if you look at in Mark's gospel, that same, that was in Matthew. But if you look at it in Mark's gospel, you know what Jesus said to her? Woman, for that saying, the devil's gone out of your daughter. Wow. Is that potent? For that saying, what you just said right there, I can have a crumb. How many know if you have a, a loaf of bread with all the ingredients in it, a crumb falls on the floor, has the same ingredient as the whole loaf. Does it not? So she said, just give me a crumb. I'll take it. For that saying, the devil's gone out of your daughter. Isn't that amazing how the devil was just removed from her life as a result of that tenacity of her faith? But here in Hebrews chapter 11 is perfect faith. Perfect faith is seen in the life of Abraham. By faith, Abraham, and this is verse 17, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son. Now, we know he didn't die. Why does it say he offered him up? Because in the mind of God, he was as good as offered up. Because he would have gone through with it, and God knew it. Well, let's read on. Seventeen. Now faith is. Faith is always the now. It, no, no, that's the wrong thing. It's a new Bible. Give me a moment. <laughs> he said through Isaac. No, that's not right either. Of him God said through Isaac shall your seed be named. He reasoned, listen, that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from which he indeed received him in a figure sense, figurative sense. Wait a minute. God told him to offer up his son, but he also said that he would have children. And he doesn't have any yet. He's not even married yet. And so what's God doing here? Look at your notes. This, these verses reveal the importance of meditation and vision. Meditation and vision. See, we want it always to be instantaneous. There's nothing on our part that we have to do. But to get into the realm of faith, it requires meditation and vision. Why? Because faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So you can't see it with the natural but you've got to see it. And while we look not at things seen, but things that are not seen. So in your notes, these verses reveal the importance of meditation and vision. Abraham concluded that God had to raise Isaac from the dead or be in violation of the covenant. Those are strong words. 
He had to raise him from the dead. You see, when you say that and some orthodox people look at you like, don't say God has to do anything. Well, why not? Why not? He has to. He concluded that he has to raise him from the dead. So here's what he did. On one hand, what did he say? Isaac is going to be the one through whom the seed will come. Speaking of Christ. Kill him. Offer him as a sacrifice to me before he has a child. Now you reckon those two statements. So what did he do? I got to go somewhere and think about this. I really got to think this thing through. Well, wait a minute. At that time, no one was ever raised from the dead, so he didn't have any clue as to how that could take place. But he went, he's going to have children. I have to take his life. Children, life, children. Lord, what are you doing here? Oh, 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 I see it. Since you can't lie and he's going to have children, if I offer him as a sacrifice, you have to raise him from the dead. And he saw it in a figure. It was so, this is called perfect faith. Remember what James says about this in chapter 2? This is called perfect faith. He said his faith was made perfect when he offered up Isaac on the altar of sacrifice. So think about that. And think about the boldness of Abraham to do that. And if you go to Genesis 22, it actually says that. He says to the servants that were left behind, he's got the wood for the, for the fire that he's going to make up there. He's got all this. He takes his son up with him. He has no animal to sacrifice. When he gets up there, Isaac says to him, you know, father, you know, here's the wood and all that. Here's the altar that you made. But where is the burnt offering for the sacrifice? He said, lay down, son. Can you imagine that? Lay down, son. Whoa. And he's ready to kill him. And the, the angel stops him and says, uh-uh, don't do that. There's a ram in the thicket. But what did he see? God had to raise him from the dead. You talk about an example of trying to muster up faith to believe something. If God could change his mind, whew, wow, his son's dead. But he said, no, you can't lie. That's what I figured out. You can't lie. I receive him raised from the dead. And he told those servants, you stay here. I and the lad will go up and we will worship. And remember, I'm going to kill him. And we will come back. Did you ever see some of those movies on TV where they portray this? You know, Hollywood's crazy. How many of you know that? You see these pictures of Abraham, you know, this story of Abraham. And what do you see about Abraham? Abraham is at the bottom of the Mount Moriah and he's just down there and he's crying out, why would you have me to do this? That's not what he was doing at all. He was saying, come on, let's go up there. Well, I'm going to see a miracle before my eyes. I'm going to kill my sons. God's going to raise them up and we're going back down. That's the truth, but they want to portray it as like he was just beside himself. That wasn't the truth. Let's quickly go through these. We're running out of time here. So James 2.22, by his works, his faith was made perfect. So that's called perfect faith. Okay, the other ones, the other verses are impossible and precedent. Precedent. So Abraham knew anything was possible with God, but it was impossible for God to break a promise. That's what he knew. It was impossible. He knew God cannot lie. So he, he had no precedent for anyone being raised from the dead. But he knew God could and had to do it. That's called faith. 
In James 2.22, by his work, his faith was made what? Perfect. So perfect faith sees the work done before acting. But acting out our faith is necessary. That's your next word. Acting it out. Now in Luke 13, 10 through 13 is the woman that was bowed over. Okay. And you know the story, but here's your words. The critics of Jesus allowed more for an animal than this woman. On the Sabbath day, you can feed your livestock. You can rescue a lamb that falls into a ditch, but you can't heal a woman who's bowed over for 18 years, bound by a demon. Right? So your words are animal and woman. To them, it was okay to loose an animal, but not a woman. Jesus calling her a daughter of Abraham made his case more vivid is your next word. This expression implied she had equal rights with the sons of Abraham. Okay, so let's put this in perspective real quick as we close this. Listen to this. Jesus walks and sees her about over for 18 years. She can't even lift up herself to look somebody eyeball to eyeball and says, he heals her. And then the Jews come along and the leaders say, you should have never done that on the Sabbath day. He said, you hypocrites, you lead your cattle to, to watering on the Sabbath day. Ought not this woman being a what? What is that? Covenant. Being a daughter of Abraham, ought not this woman in covenant with God through Abraham be loose, whom Satan has bound, be loose from this bond on the Sabbath day? That was the language of Jesus. On the strength of the covenant, he said she should be healed. That's powerful. Well, we've got a better covenant. Now, that was the children of Abraham, right? But if you read 1 John chapter 3, the first couple of verses, you know what it says? Now are we the sons of God. Now are we the sons of God. If a daughter of Abraham should be heard, healed, how much more should a son or daughter of God be healed? So real quick, your words. Number 2319, God doesn't have to confirm his word. I mean, I mean God doesn't have to confirm his word with an oath, but he did. His integrity speaks for itself. The oath was for our benefit to satisfy our doubts. That's what it was for. He didn't have to do that if he didn't want to. And then in Genesis 15, which is the handout, you read it for yourself. There is a, an example or a sample of a blood covenant relationship. And you can read how it unfolds. And when you see that, there's a place where it comes to the, what is called the walk of blood. And the walk of blood is where you've got these animal parts together with a trough filled with blood. And then the, the leaders or the head that will walk the walk of blood. And when you're walking the walk of blood, you're pronouncing the blessings and the curses. If you obey it, if you keep it, you're blessed. If you violate it, you die. And they're walking back and forth in, the blood, in, the, in that blood. Well, beloved, we've got some blood that speaks better than that of Abel's or any animal that could ever be sacrificed. It's the blood of Jesus Christ that purchased our redemption, that provided for us salvation, spirit, soul, body, and throughout eternity, a glorified body on the other side. Can you say amen? Amen. Man, I'm glad I came tonight. I don't know about you, but praise God. Let's all stand together before the Lord.